Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "Dressing Up" by W. R. Burnett. First published in Harper's, November 1929. I always, when I was thinking about the story after reading it, I, I call it "dressing up" rather than "dressing up." Um, but I was also like curious, why is it called that? And then I thought, okay, I think I kind of know why it's called that because this is a, it's a. It doesn't really tell you what it is right away, but it ends up being a gangster story, I guess, is, is the way we would put it, right? Hitman story? Um, well, certainly the plot has to do with a hitman, yeah. Yeah. I don't know that that's what the story's about, though. I, I think the title is is apt. It, it gives us a key into how to read it. Huh. Interesting, um, but but I, maybe but maybe it's just you know one way to go. Did I tell you how I came across this story? Please tell us. Okay, uh, no, I just I, I I don't think I told you previously. Um, uh, it's kind of a funny thing. I was I was looking through um, an issue of Ellery Queen, Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, June nineteen forty seven, and I saw uh, one of our uh, previous episodes uh, had been. Uh, previously published in that issue. It was uh, The Killers by um, Hemingway. Uh, Hemingway, right. And uh, and then when I turned to the to the section, to ho- hoping to see some illustrations, as usual, Ellery Queen did not provide any illustrations, um, I noted that it had a very large introduction, but more importantly, um, it its introduction mentioned that it was being paired with this story. Um, and then I... I was like, huh, how come I never heard of this story? I never even heard of W.R. Burnett. Um, but uh, I, ha- when they started talking about W.R. Burnett, there's something glimmering in the back of my mind, and I, it's just because it's before my time. Um, he was, I think I'm right on this, the author of the book that became a movie called Little Caesar, or maybe it's Little, Little Caesar. I think it's Little Caesar. Which I, was, you remember that movie at all? I've never seen it. That's Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, it's, Edward it's G. Considered Robinson. considered to be the the very first classic gangster movie. Right. Gangster movie. And uh, so I, maybe I'll read you just the editorial introduction here to Dressing Up from, from Ellery Queen. We're reading it in the original Harper, or at least I'm reading in the original Harper's version. Um, I'll just read the intro here. Dressing up, or, sorry, dressing up won first prize in the O. Henry Memorial Award Prize stories of 1930. It tells the story of the last day in the life of a successful gunman. Again, that preoccupation with the ultimate finality, death. Violent and sudden death. Just as The Killers is so com- completely characteristic of Ernest Hemingway's work, dressing up epitomizes, again, in a few pages, the qualities that made W.R. Burnett famous. Um, and then it goes on to compare the two, and it gives a sort of a um, a little biographical summary of Burnett's life and how he wrote a bunch of stuff and couldn't get anybody to buy it, and then moved to Chicago, and uh, suddenly became an overnight success. 
um, you know, having written five novels previously in eight years and uh, became an overnight success with Little Caesar. And, and I guess just like Hemingway became an overnight success in a certain sense, except, of course, it wasn't overnight. It just seems that way in the public mind. So I thought that that was a really interesting pairing. And I hadn't, I was like, why are they pairing them together? But now, even though the styles are incredibly different, I mean, uh, this one feels a lot more like an O. Henry story than Hemingway does. Not that it's very O. Henry, because it's kind of, it's a little bit too harsh. But um, I thought that I was a really interesting it, it pairing. Te- telegraphs its ending, I think. So in that sense, it won the O. Henry Award, but the O. Henry Award is for outstanding short story. Right. It's not a short story in the o- with an O. Henry ending. Right, right, absolutely. But uh, O. Henry, I, I think of him as sort of, he's the American uh, Guy de Maupassant. <laughs> um, I, wish, I wish we could claim that, we United Statesians, but I think Guy de Maupassant actually had a wider range. Um, he, he, well, you know, he was so good at the short story and he was so popular as a short story writer. It's, it's, uh, you know, if Dickens was, was the British version, uh, I mean, it, you can't really do these analogies, but, um, Oh Henry loomed so large in my childhood that I'm like, I don't like him, even though every, I liked every story. Because <laughs> they just kept pushing him. And it's because his stories are good, right? I think, I think the Ellery Queen editorial introduction that you just read to us has to do with the fact that both of these are grim. Both stories project a sense of foreboding. Mm. Both stories give us um, dialogue from a professional killer. Um, so th- there's a lot alike in in what we see there. I think also uh, there is a a terseness to both Hemingway's style and Burnett's mm-hmm. that few words imply an enormous amount about the setting, both social and physical. Um, and that's uh, a, a tremendous, tremendous skill. And Burnett, I, I think, shows this off brilliantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he, by the way, uh, as according to what I stumbled upon, he also wound up writing... Scarface, High Sierra, The Asphalt Jungle, mm-hmm. of the City. I mean, he, he did an awful lot of writing that turned into either gangster stuff or film noir mm-hmm. at a classic period of Hollywood. So uh, he, he mined his Chicago experience quite well. Mm-hmm. I was surprised that I'd never heard of him either. I guess I just yeah, he's never hidden, heard of right? He's he's hidden behind those movies where we see the actors. You know, I I know Edward G. Robinson because you know he was in movies when I was a kid, uh, right? And then you know he had this whole backstory. He had this gravitas, um, but you know the words in his mouth are really I can see him in this story, um, and. It, it is a really. I wouldn't have thought to pair them, the killers and uh, dressing up, but I do see them as yeah. They are they are almost on parallel tracks, but told from a different point of view. Right? We almost have the same scene in here. There's a great scene where he goes to get some coffee, um, and the guy's saying, you know, I'm going straight. I can't. I can't uh, do this. And then he says, Well, you could make a run for Canada because he's he's on his uh, he's on parole or whatever, um, and and he. 
he just sort of shrugs, shrugs it off. And that, that's this, there's that whole almost scene is in the killers. Um, there's this sense that everybody in town knows the inevitable is going to happen, except for the guy who's denying it. And even he knows. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the, yeah, the, the counterman when he goes for coffee, uh, is himself on parole. It's a, the whole story is set among uh, among low lives, among uh, people who uh, are the demi monde, uh, to give them a fancy, nice sounding name. Mm. But, you know, they're they're grifters. Uh, Blue, our main character, is a killer, and his girlfriend Birdie uh, turns out to be a former, I guess, now that he can afford her full time, former prostitute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people he talks with seem to be like the wingman, either on parole or somehow shady. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of shades, not to make too much of a pun of it, as the story goes on, we are in a situation where Blue goes out of Bertie's apartment early in the day to go get a cup of coffee. From He winds up in that place where he talks with the wingman. But on his way, leaving her apartment, um, he's he's aware that... Um, someone's after him. He's been warned about this by two other hoodlums, um, but they're they're scampering. They're on their way to St. Louis, but he's staying there. As he figures he's had a good run of luck, and by golly, he's going to be fine. He mm-hmm. got paid a lot for killing this one guy, and now that revenge seems to be in the offing, he thinks, no, nope, his luck will hold. But still, when he walks out of the house, he... Uh, early in the morning, there's nothing much going on. He looks up and he sees uh, an old woman uh, step back from her window and let the curtains close. Mm-hmm. And later, when he leaves the counter place and he is, in fact, gunned down, the window snaps shut. So even someone looking down in the street is somehow involved in mm-hmm. this uh, illegal uh, world, this world of uh, Parasites. Yeah, the police are completely absent, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, and I, it it opens in that same sense, with, like the manager's in on it, the, the clerk's in on it, the cashier's in on it. They all see it coming. I think, I think we better tell people who haven't read the story what's going on. It sure. begins right away with Blue and Birdie going into a men's clothing store, and the the very opening moment is. Him trying, Blue, the the killer, Blue wanting to redress himself mm-hmm. so that he will, in fact, become a higher class person. The language that he uses for that is always bullmish, which is a uh, slang for Boulevard, Mich- uh, Mich- uh, Michigan in, um, in Chicago. Uh, but it is based on the older slang of uh, Boulevard Saint-Michel, which is one of the two main avenues in the uh, Latin Quarter in Paris, Mm -hmm. a place with interesting stores and bookshops and otherwise. where you go to Peacock, right? Yeah, yeah. So he goes here. But, of course, Michigan Avenue, it really did in the 1920s have that. uh, That phrase really was there. And it's specifically... um, mentioned in relation to other so-called one-sided streets 
that is a street that has buildings on one, on one side, was when Michigan Avenue uh, was first uh, established as a fancy neighborhood. It was called Michigan Avenue because the other side of the street was Lake Michigan. Um, if you go there today, you wouldn't know that because landfill has moved Chicago over. So that Michigan Avenue, which was initially Boulevard, Michigan, um, it was not uh, it wasn't in the middle. But now it's in the middle of the city. Um, so he keeps saying, oh, I look really bullish. I'm really bullish, you know, mm-hmm. really it's, a, it's a totemic. He comes. I, I was I didn't count it, but it was like one, two, three. Like it just comes up again and again. It's almost like his his lucky charm. Right. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. I, and I think it goes right back to the title. And it's like, what is he dressing up for? Well, exactly. he's going he's going to Chicago. He's going on the train. And doesn't, doesn't he look great? No, no. He's going from Chicago. Yeah, he's he's leaving. He's going to New York. That's where he's. That's going. right. Yeah. And he's going on a train that he calls the 20th Century, but it was actually known as the 20th Century Limited. Limited meaning that it made limited number of stops. It's mm. what we would call an express train, and it was considered to be one of the grand fancy trains of its era. So when he said, "I've got tickets on the 20th Century," it's an interesting pun. Mm-hmm. He's saying, I, I'm going to make it. I've come up and I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to go to New York, he says. And then he says it's almost a joke for people at that time. He said, because I know it was big man in Brooklyn, which, of course, is not the main place to have the, the I mean, the financial center of the world is already mm. becoming um, Manhattan. And Brooklyn is part of the city of New York, but it's it's not where you want to go if you're after money. And he's after money. What I love about I love so much about Burnett's writing um, now that you've pointed me to it is this concision. Could I mm-hmm. I'd like to read the beginning. Sure. Okay, so just when the store manager saw Blue and his girl, Bertie, coming in the front door, he turned to Al, one of the clerks and said, look at this, Al. The stockyards are moving downtown. Al laughed. Then he put on his best professional manner, clasped his hands in front of his stomach, inclined his head slightly, and walked up to Blue. What can I do for you, sir? Now, if you unpack this, my gosh, when the store, I mean, so now we know we're in a store. We don't yet quite know what kind of store, but we already know that whatever Blue and Birdie look like, the guy who manages the store can tell that these are marks. Mm. These are people he's going to be able to deal with. When he says the stockyards are moving downtown, if you know American history, you probably already are guessing that it's Chicago, which it turns out to be. And by saying the stockyards are moving downtown, what it means is that the, the stockyards, which after all are grueling work. I mean, we've read um, The Jungle you know how terrible it were that work is how oppressed the people are who are involved in the stockyard and now suddenly we've got that kind of person showing up here but although al laughs he's a hypocrite as you said they too the manager al the, the stock boy who's brought up from the basement with cravats um these are all people who are willing to fleece blue because blue turns out to have a lot of money blue is a uh, a common slang for a hunting dog. 
And that, of course, is what this blue is. He gets his money as a big payday because he killed for hire, we find out. And a bird is uh, slang for a girl, and particularly at this time for a prostitute. So we've got two low-life characters. And nothing has, I mean, all of that is already packed in here. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it's just incredible how much is packed. And if we did the first hundred words of any Hemingway novel or short story, we would find the same thing. Mm-hmm. Ned is a terrific, terrific stylist. And, and then, no, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. It's it isn't just the the language like uh, that comes out of the mouths, which is really fun and and well fun in the sense that it's it it makes you do a little bit of work. Uh, you, you don't quite know what's going on until the action happens that follows it. Um, at least that's what I was sensing. It, it's like boy, this is really stylized. But I think it it was stylized in the sense that he's he's captured their voices right and the way well. I don't know if they actually talked like that, but based on you know my understanding of old gangster movies starring Edward G. Robinson, that's how they right. talked, right? Well, um, at least that's how Burnett persuaded us they talked. Yeah, it's almost like David Mamet, right? You know, um, yeah. David Mamet can convince me that that's how grifters talk. <laughs> yeah, even though it's probably the Chicago style of uh, theater. <laughs> but even even though the language is that is is captured. I think a careful reading, a, a deep reading, if I may say, um, shows us how thoughtfully this is put together by the author or mm-hmm. the implied author. Uh, Blue says when, you know, the clerk talks to him, he says right off the top, I'm buying an outfit, see? He said, I can't help but remember Edward G. Robinson ending his sentences mm-hmm. with C and mm-hmm. Little Caesar. I'm buying an outfit, see? He said, I'm going to shed these rags and climb into something slick. Okay, so now we know how it is that it was obvious that this was the stockyards coming downtown. It's by his garments. Mm-hmm. And this guy thinks that if he can shed his garments, he doesn't say, I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to shed this and climb into something slick. This is social climbing. He's trying to discard his past and move up to something better. And the something better, slick, doesn't just mean that it is um, fancy. It means that nothing can stick to it. Mm-hmm. That he can get right. That's what slick is. You know, um, I'm going to do this. But he says he want, he orders a gray suit. Uh, Bertie says that. Um, but first blue says, but first I want some silk underwear. I'm dressing from the hide out. Right now, this is still all in the first column of the first page of this story. Notice the use of the word hide. It may be that gangsters refer to their skin as hide, but there's so clear a connection between his self-reference to his own skin as hide and the store manager's reference to his origin as the stockyards, mm. right? Blue and Birdie, the hunting dog and the prostitute, they're animals that are going to be chewed up in the larger society. And so I think what happens, even though we know he's a murderer, he gives us a flashback to him committing the murder for hire mm-hmm. that gave him the, the tremendous payday that's allowing him to flash this money so stupidly, um, you know, show it off. 
Uh, so clearly he's going to be able to be found and hunted down by someone who wants revenge. We see that in retrospect, I mean, in his retrospect, but because he's so clearly a victim of a culture that is just strong beyond his comprehension. That, I mean, he has a belief in the American dream. He just gets it all wrong. And yes, he's a killer, but he dies for it. I think one of the things that makes this such a, for me, powerful story is that it tells me that you can want to dress up, up, climbing up, climb into something slick. You can want to dress up, but, you know, you can't make it. Dressing isn't what will get you up. You've missed the real core of how you can move out of that terrible environment where, like the animals in the stockyards, you're destined to be killed for someone else's benefit. Mm. I think the story is just full of a deep understanding of the sociology of the American underclass. Mm. I, I want to read a bit from page 675 uh, in the version I'm holding. Um, it starts in the first column and goes into the second. Before the taxi came, a small sedan drew up at the curb across the street and two men got out. There he is, said one of them, pointing at Blue. Hello, Guido, shouted Blue. Look at me, ain't I Boomish? Uh, Guido ran across the street, took Blue by the arm, shook him several times and said, so shook him, it's like, is he shaking him on his shoulders or is he shaking his hands, right? It's not clear. And then it becomes clear. You got to sober up, Keed. Get it? You got to sober up. Somebody spilled something, see? Me and Bud's taken it on the lamb. St. Louis won't look bad to us. And then this is the line that gets me. Yellow, said Blue. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> sure, said Guido, but I got a steak. And I'm going to spend some time. Uh, I'm going to spend some of it before I get bumped. Somebody wised Mike. Mike's boys, they're looking for Pascal right now. What the hell? said Blue, laughing. Look at me, Guido. Ain't I Boo Mish? I got silk underwear this under this suit. Look at Bertie. Look at me, said Bertie. Ain't I Boo Mish? <laughs> Say, said Guido, you better dish that Tommy and put, uh, put in with us. We got a room in this we got room in this heap not me said blue i ain't scared of mike bova i'll bump him next all right said guido you'll have a swell funeral guido called the other man let that bum go so long blue said guido so long said blue bye bye guido said Bertie. guido crossed the street got into the driver's seat slammed the door and the sedan moved off taxi was waiting and the doorman helped Bertie and blue into it good night sir said the doorman so the doorman jumps to get the cob. Everybody's jumping to do what they will. It's almost like they're all being served their last meal, right? And yep. then uh, I love that he, he's having trouble sleeping. He's looking in the mirror. And then Birdie, um, she's lying. lying. We see her lying on her uh, back with an gl empty glass on her belly. And she says, I'm getting sick said Bertie. Blue went over and looked down at her. Her face was pale and drawn. There was blue circles under her eyes. <laughs> Getting sick, Bertie? Yeah, I can't stand it like I used to when I was in the 
I was with the madam. Put me to bed, honey. Blue picked up Bertie and carried her into the bedroom. Bertie began to hiccup. Give me a glass of water, she said. You don't want water, Blue said. You want a nice big slug. No, give me a glass of water. And then he goes to get it, and when he comes back, she's asleep. Um, He can't sleep. He goes and looks at the mirror and looks outside, and he can't, why can't he sleep? It's the same reason she's sick. They both know, right? They yeah. both know. They both know. And he, what is he dressing up for? That's, I'm like, what? He's dressing up for his own funeral, right? He is, but he doesn't want to let himself think that. Otherwise, he wouldn't buy a dozen shirts and right, two dozen right. pairs of socks. But it's he showing wants- off. He, he's not going to need that money, right? Oh, of course not. Well, he says he's going to have a big payday when he gets to New York because he's the number one guy people are going to want to hire for contract killing. But it's it's clear when he comes out of that that diner, he knows he's going to be killed. Mm-hmm. And he must have been suspecting it all along by the way he leaves the apartment and looks up and down the street. I mean, he's he's been warned. Guido has told him this. Instead of getting out of town, he's staying there saying, I know my luck will hold. Mm. Maybe he's whistling by his own graveyard. Mm. So I, I agree with you. And yet I also think he's more complex, which is that is to say he knows he's going to die, but he wants to be able to approach his death as if he thinks he's going to win. He's going to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there is a reason that um, when he he hears that, you know, that he's going to have to die. He's talking to. Uh, reporting all of this to Bertie, he says, Christ, I says, there's Pete now. As, uh, mm. he's, he's remembering what he did. Christ, I says, hmm. die to live. Interesting. Pete as in St. Peter? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Pascal, I have no idea how much, uh, how much education Burnett had, but Pascal is... Wouldn't the names you, are interesting, right? Wouldn't you say his most famous essay is The Wager? I, I, I don't know enough about Pascal to say that, but I do know he's an intellectual. Uh, well, he's a mathematician and, and, a, uh, and a philosopher and an essayist. And The Wager is a very famous essay of his in which he demonstrates that it is not possible to know whether or not God exists. Huh. But, he said... Since it is not possible to know, and there is so oh, little I cost see. in believing that he exists, and such a great reward if he does, and you well, you allow that he exists, why not just go ahead and believe in God anyway? <laughs> Christ, I says, there's Pete now. Um, whom is he talking about? He's talking to Pascal, right. who's sitting with his head against the wall, sleeping. There's lots of little goodies in here. Just before that, there's the headline. This is the, the section in which Blue is remembering the the hit that he performed to get the money that drives the current events in the story, about just a day later. Um, and there's a, a Headline in the paper, blue in his shirt sleeves, his collar wilted and his tie untied, was sitting at the table reading, because Bertie's there, a a crumpled newspaper. There were three-inch headlines. Then we get the headline, you hear me, said blue, funniest thing I ever pulled. Then he gives us the recollection of the actual murder. The three-inch headline we get is this. Bova's lieutenant, that's Mike Bova, the guy who's now going to be after 
blue, according to Guido. Mm -hmm. Bova's lieutenant killed, shot down as he left his office by gunmen. (laughs) He was shot down as he left his office by gunmen. I would have thought he would have left his office by door. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. This is a terrible headline. It's no, a, it's a funny headline. They're, they're playing with it, right? <laughs> well, that's my point. That's my point. To make it grammatically correct, it should have said gunmen killed or gunmen shot down Bova's lieutenant as he left his office. Right. You could have used fewer words and been clearer. This is intentionally moved around. And what's it a critique of? It's a critique of the newspaper industry, yeah. which is making its money by being able to sell a prurient story. Yeah, three-inch three inch, uh, headline, that's huge. And it is. And to some extent, I can't help but wonder if Burnett is thinking, and I'm making my money by getting people to enjoy the struggles of some poor son of a bitch who can't figure any better way to make it in the world than to kill for hire. Mm. I think it's, excuse me, I think it's a a deeper and more problematic story than we know at first. And frankly, anybody who is a student of American literature knows that there is wide agreement that simple, clear, clear, Declarative sentences, small, muscular prose, that's the adjective that's been used so often, characterizes Hemingway, Mm -hmm. whose work is, in fact, it's got lots of things we may not like about it, but it is deep, and it's not an accident that he won the Nobel Prize in Literature. When I take a look at the killers, and I take a look at how far down we can go with Burnett, I'm sorry other people didn't realize what we can see. With this guy's work, there is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.